and Michael Schumacher is coming in to win his fourth race of the year to extend his world championship lead over Mika Hakkinen by a further four points from 14 points to 18 points. Schumacher wins in Germany. The man was known as the Rainmaster, or the Regenmeister in his native German. Formula One driver Michael Schumacher excelled in all weather conditions, but it was his ability to race in the rain that turned him into a legend. In 1996, coming off back-to-back drivers' championships for the Benetton team, Schumacher made a stunning move to Ferrari. But early in the season, he was stalling having been forced to drop out of three of the first six races. A torrential downpour at the Spanish Grand Prix wouldn't seem like the venue for most drivers to break out of a slump, but Schumi managed to outpace the field by 45 seconds, while only five other cars even finished the race. It was that kind of skill that led Schumacher to five more drivers' championships, a record number of wins, and over a billion dollars earned in his racing career. But was it all skill? The Rainmaster may well have never reached those lofty heights without the help of two men working behind the scenes, Ross Braun and Rory Byrne. With Braun as technical director and Byrne designing the cars for Benetton and then for Ferrari, Schumacher was not the only beneficiary. Teammates like Johnny Herbert, Eddie Irvine, and Rubens Barrichello also had fast cars to drive and clever strategies to execute. The result was six Constructors' Championships for overall team performance for Ferrari, not to mention one for Benetton. Braun and Byrne might not have achieved the fortune and glory of the Rainmaster, but their reputation as the masterminds behind his success wasn't a bad consolation. I'm Paul Michaelman. I'm Ben Shields, and this is CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. In this episode, just how valuable are Formula One drivers, and could their worth be plummeting in the age of analytics? CounterPoints is brought to you by Ticketmaster, the world's leading ticketing software and services company. Ticketmaster is trusted by thousands of artists, teams, and venues across 29 countries, connecting more than 1 billion fans and powering half a billion tickets each year. That's 15 tickets per second to live events around the globe. So whether you're grabbing seats to a must-win game, catching the hottest show in town, or giving someone you love an experience they'll remember forever, head over to Ticketmaster for 100% safe, verified tickets to your next unforgettable event. Because live only happens once. In CounterPoints, we look beyond the data in search of what the data reveals, or supposedly reveals, about what's actually happening both on the field and off. In each episode, we put one analytics-based hypothesis or question to the test and see how well it stands up. Today's hypothesis. In Formula One, mathematicians should be paid more than drivers. On the circuit, tens, even hundreds of seconds can be the difference between podium glory and being out of a job. Races are won and lost thanks to the skills of the drivers and the strengths of the car, yes, But as the sheer volume of data available to F1 teams increases, another group of individuals have become key contributors to a team's success. Data analysts. Analysts run countless simulations incorporating every possible variable to inform their driver's race strategy on a Sunday 
and achieve maximum performance for the driver and the race car. But while salaries and sponsorships can push a driver's annual income into the eight-figure range, the mathematical brains in the background make just a fraction of that. If the person analyzing the numbers and making decisions about race strategy is just as important as the person steering the wheel, shouldn't they also be reaping the financial windfall? James Allen certainly thinks so. The president of Motorsport Network, James has covered Formula One as a journalist for over 30 years and has seen firsthand the sport's data-driven revolution. I asked James to defend his position. All right. It's my pleasure to welcome onto the show James Allen. We have a true expert on the line with us today. James, thanks so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Nice to, nice to be here. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're going to get into your fascinating thesis that we're going to discuss here in a little bit. But first, I want to try and set some context. And we definitely will have some Formula One fans as part of our audience, but we may have some audience members that don't know too much about the sport. So I was wondering at the start, could you help us get a sense of what data analysts actually do for Formula One teams? So it's an interesting story. I mean, I guess it's like uh, the world at large that we inhabit. You know, 20 years ago, the, the, the amount of data that was being processed was, was a lot less than it is today. It started to come into Formula One around the time of, of Et and Senna and Alain Prost and, and these, those great races that we had in the late 80s and early 90s, where they were able to start measuring the performance of the car out on the circuit. They had more sensors coming onto the cars, measuring things like temperatures and wheel speeds and pressures. Um, and then, as, as with the, the outside world in general, obviously it's a technology-driven sport. Um, the level of, of data that, uh, that is available has just got greater and greater uh, coming from the cars. They can measure it in real time. Initially, it was just in the pit garages at the side of the racetrack. But as the years have gone on, uh, using telemetry, very much similar to um, what uh, I guess was sending back information from the, the Apollo space missions uh, back to, to Houston, um, but a much, much more sophisticated version of it, um, measuring everything in real time back in the race factories. So a team could be racing out on the track in Melbourne, Australia, and it's being monitored in real time, all the, all the parameters of the car's performance, uh, thousands and thousands of miles away back in, in Europe. What also... Um, they began to explore more uh, was the variables using the lap times that the cars were setting 20 cars out on the racetrack all doing various different speeds with different kind of tire compounds on on the cars and performance different variables and they could start to model those things to actually try and work out what was going to happen in the race you know who was going to come out on top when people might want to make a pit stop for fresh tires what kind of performance boost that would give them uh, etc and uh, and it just got more and more sophisticated over the years so it's its own cottage industry it's its own world that's going on behind the scenes as these highly paid sportsmen are driving the race cars out on track you've got these brilliant mathematicians in the background who are having their own race well that leads us very nicely into the thesis that we're going to explore with you today james and let's get into it it's a bold one i can already i think hear some of the drivers lining up outside your office to come talk to you about this particular thesis <laughs> And you're here to say that Formula One data analysts should be paid more than drivers. So what's the reasoning behind this thesis? Well, 
Formula One cars are obviously very, uh, very complex machines. And one of the questions you always get asked is how much is the driver and how much of it is the car? Because if you took the champion driver of the moment, which is Lewis Hamilton, a five-time Formula One world champion, and you put him in a car from a back-of-the-grid or middle-grid team like Sauber, uh, for example, or, or Williams, would he still win races and would he still win the world championship? And the answer is no. He'd probably do slightly better than the current drivers that got, but he would not be winning races and world championships. So clearly, you need the car. Um, Drivers do make a difference, particularly when it rains or in, in variable conditions. And in certain types of racetracks where there's a, a big confidence element, the human side kicks in and the judgment and the skill. But above all that, you know, the definition of whether someone wins or loses is more often than not decided by the decisions that get made around the race. So like I was referencing earlier on, uh, what tire to start, there's three different compounds of tire different levels of softness that you can have but the softer the tires the the less long lasting they are and you know if you have to cover a 200 mile race 70 odd laps for example of a racetrack you have to figure out what's the fastest way from the start to the finish and the drivers are pretty dependent on the mathematicians who are figuring out what's the best way to do this um if you start at the front of the grid, as Hamilton often does, it can be quite straightforward, but there's still quite a lot of jeopardy. You can still throw it away by making a bad decision, and we've seen that many times before. Fernando Alonso lost with, with Ferrari the world championship in Abu Dhabi in 2010 because they made a decision um, when he had the race under control. They made a decision based on trying to cover one of their competitors in the race, but they completely forgot to realize that another much slower car had already made a stop and was going to be blocking Alonso when he came out of the pits after his pit stop. And the whole world championship went up in smoke because Alonso couldn't get past this car. So literally world championships, let alone Grand Prix, have been decided on this. So these guys should be paid a, a fortune because <laughs> they decide more race outcomes than the drivers do. Well, it's interesting that you make that point because... I want to bring in the business element here, and maybe this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but you do think about the amount of sponsorship attention and dollars that the drivers attract. We don't see any celebrity mathematicians running around here, do we? Uh, no. Uh, well, no question at all that the, um, the guys who uh, are crunching uh, the data and, and doing this kind of strategy using all these amazing techniques like Monte Carlo analysis and, and game theory – you know, they provide a tr tremendous value for money, I think, for, for what they do. And what we find more and more is that companies involved with, with Formula One want to find out more about this. And they want to see what they can learn about themselves and about their businesses from the way that Formula One teams go about this mathematical analysis, this data analysis, because essentially this is change management in real time. And so a lot of businesses are, are, are fascinated by that. You know, they're fascinated by how they move much more slowly than Formula One teams. And the race outcomes and the evolution of the way the races develop, obviously, is much slower. Than, it's much faster than what happens in a, in a, in a normal business. But um, th this is something that Formula One excels at. And you do find a lot of sponsors and businesses really drilling down into these practices. You know, the way that data analysts and mathematicians behind the scenes uh, manage manage these processes and 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 they they take a lot from it yeah that's an interesting point and i guess maybe in a few years time we'll start to see a few celebrity mathematicians walking around the paddock now you mentioned the car earlier i, I do want to 
talk a little bit about the engineers and the technical team behind the car, because you are advancing an increasingly persuasive argument about the role of the mathematicians, but wouldn't you say that the engineers of the technical team deserve the biggest paycheck? Because in the end, it's about having the fastest car. Uh, possibly, but there's so many of them. You know, you, I guess the guy at the top of the pyramid maybe deserves the, the biggest paycheck. But I mean, a, a well-funded team fighting at the front of the grid will have over 90 engineers in the R&D and design department, sometimes over 100 of them, uh, all beavering away trying to find you know, microscopic incremental gains uh, that will make the car go faster. Typically, a Formula One car from the start of the season in March in Australia through to the end of the season in November in Abu Dhabi will improve by about two seconds a lap, which means that if you went back to Melbourne uh, in November, the end of November, on the same track and in roughly the same conditions if you could find them, your car would have gone at least two seconds quicker than it, than it did at the beginning of the season. Um, and and the, what the teams that, that do the best job are the ones that obviously create a fast car in the first place, but then are able to iterate it and develop it. I mean, the iteration, it's like, uh, it's, you know, much faster than iOS. You know, you're on, constantly having to update your, uh, your, uh, your phone with the latest iOS. But Formula One teams are updating their car literally every Grand Prix. But there's so many of them that, um, you know, it's a collective team approach that's, that's important there. Whereas quite often with what, what I'm talking about with these uh, brilliant mathematicians, data analysts and, uh, and strategists, you know, it's, it's one, or one person or, or at maximum two or three who are, who are arriving at the conclusions, analyzing in real time what's going on and making the big calls. We have a very famous metric in the sport of baseball called wins above replacement. And to apply that to Formula One, let's say a, the best mathematician from a winning Formula One team goes to another team, would that result in a measurable improvement in that team's performance if the best mathematician joined that team? Yes, it would. I think it would. I mean, the very best um, strategy people make the right calls more often than not. The one thing that is inescapable is that is that the best teams tend to have the best of everything anyway. And if you've got the fastest car, the job of the strategy guy is actually easier than if you've got a car that's running for 15th or 16th on the grid. You have to use a lot more ingenuity and cunning and innovative ideas to try and make something happen and shake the tree because the you're there because that's the, the, the pace of your car. But it is nevertheless the case that the, the, the brightest guys and women rise to the top. And here I would make the observation that um, there are more women uh, participating in Formula One than, than people might imagine, and certainly a lot more than there are in, in a lot of other sports like uh, NBA or NFL. If you look at the, the composition of the, obviously not the players, but if you look at the support staff, I don't think there are an awful lot of women uh, participating in those sports. But in, in Formula One, that, that they definitely are as engineers, as data analysts and scientists. And indeed, of the 10 Formula One teams, three of the chief strategists, the main decision makers uh, in those teams, are women. And they do a very, very good job. That's outstanding. I did not realize that. And I appreciate you sharing that with our show and our listeners. My last question on challenging this thesis is around the importance of the drivers understanding some of the mathematical output. Is it important that they are as proficient in the data as uh, maybe some of the other members of the team, how important is it that the driver is obsessed with the data as well? Yeah, 
the, the point is really that the drivers of today have, have to deal with data far more than the drivers of the past. People love to compare drivers of, of, of this generation with drivers of the 50s and 60s. And whereas with NBA or uh, NFL or baseball, you, you can do that because the sport hasn't really changed that much. In, in Formula One, it's very diff- difficult because the cars have changed so much. They've got so much more grip. They are much, much faster. But I guess without a doubt, the biggest change is in terms of the workload for the driver and that they have to they have to be data analysts themselves to to some extent they sit there and they are given all sorts of sheets and information about their their how they slowed the car down before the corner how they turned the wheel in and rotated the car loaded up the front tires the rear tires etc etc they can make microscopic changes on all these details to improve their driving whereas back in the days of um, of Mario Andretti and uh, and those sort of guys, they would go out on the racetrack, they'd come back and tell the engineers what the car was doing. And the engineers just had to believe them because there was no way for them to measure what the car was doing other than the word of the driver. Uh, so you could say that Mario and his uh, his cohorts had a pretty easy time in comparison uh, because now the uh, the teams know exactly what is going on and they can therefore measure the performance of the driver uh, literally uh, second by second. So he has always got a whole set of KPIs hanging over his head and he can't get away with anything because they have full transparency of what he's doing. Yeah, and that historical perspective is really interesting that the driver used to be the main source of data capture for teams. Things have certainly changed. All right, James, I'd like to get into some future considerations with all of our guest experts and talk a little bit about where we're headed from an analytics standpoint in the sport. And my first question is about whether the amount of data that formula teams have at their disposal is actually a good thing for the sport. I remember Austin this year, and because of the weather, it impacted the amount of information that teams had. So there was incomplete information. Teams had to use a little bit more of their experience maybe to make some decisions and even rely on some of the driver instincts. So do you think that the amount of data that teams have is a, is a good thing for the sport? That's a, a very interesting question. And I mean, it depends whose interests we're serving, I guess, really. I mean, from the team's point of view, it's a very, very good thing. And from the driver's point of view, because it means they have a very, very high degree of understanding of, of the car's performance and how to make it better. But I would argue that Formula One exists not really as a technical exercise, uh, but as an entertainment and, you know, there are 300 million fans around the world who, who would agree with me, and they want it to be the more entertaining, the better. But what they also want, uh, Formula One fans are pretty savvy. They're pretty tech savvy, and they like deep insights, and they like to understand data. And I think the journey that Formula One is on at the moment is to try and make more of that data available to the race fans around the world if they want it. If you don't want it, you just want to watch the race, that's cool. But if you actually want to understand some of the biometrics, some of the the heart rate of the chief mechanic who's standing there in the pit lane waiting with a wheel gun in his hand as the car approaches him at 50 miles an hour, has to hit its marks perfectly. You know, his heart rate's pretty high. Um, The driver's out on circuit, what the car's doing. There are, I think, millions of fans around the world that that want access to that. And I think Formula One is is definitely looking at ways in which it can can, um, present that data to its audiences. Um, And, you know, there's a thing called the Tata Communications uh, Innovation Prize, uh, which is uh, something that that Formula One 
does together with um, with one of the teams and and with this company Tata that does all the uh, all the connectivity around around Formula One, where they're looking for um, a crowdsourcing, if you like, a, a competition that that looks for fans to actually come up with ways of of surfacing this kind of stuff. So that actually, more and more, the sport is looking to its fan base to to tell it what how it would like the data to be served. So I think we're going to see look future staring into the future. I think we're going to see more and more of that. And, uh, and I think a deeper and deeper understanding of the sport as a consequence. So the answer to your question is, yes, I think having lots of data is a good thing. Yeah, and I'm with you from a fan standpoint. It just enhances the viewing experience every single time I watch a race. All right, last future question. It's about the role of machine learning in Formula One racing. Will the computers be better decision makers than the humans? Maybe are they already? Um and if so, how might that change strategic decision-making in the sport? Wow, that's a very, very interesting question. <laughs> um, I, I think, first of all, going back to the whole point about entertainment, I mean, what is entertaining about sport, I think, is, is man or woman mastering machine. And so that when you talk about mechanized sport anyway, so it's an absolute brute, a Formula One car. If you or I tried to drive it, we would break our next going around the corner and we would just you know we would be terrified so that's the first thing that people want to see but they also want to see the you know the human decision making processes there's something fascinating about people being under pressure and being forced to make decisions it's the same you know in an nfl game what do you do in the third down and you've, you've got to make a decision on what the the next play is people want to see that if they knew that it was all being done by a machine on machine learning i think there'd be less appeal and I don't think it's any different, really, in Formula One. So in the same way as there are rules in the sport that, that stop driver aids, as they're called, like things like ABS brakes are not allowed in Formula One because you want part of slowing a car down for a corner and not spinning it is, is, is the skill of the driver. And you want to keep that there. So for me, the decision-making process around this, for all that machine learning might, might be helpful, I would think we have to find some red lines here to make sure that it's always humans who are doing all the key jobs in the sport. All right, Paul. James Allen says that Formula One teams should pay mathematicians more than drivers. Do you buy that? I want to buy it, Ben. I really want to buy it because I love it. I'm missing a key relative measure, however. You brought up this notion of value over replacement driver in the interview with James, and I thought that was a really astute question. What about value over replacement mathematician? If we're determining who should be paid more, the question is, who is the least replaceable? Who's to say the mathematician is any less replaceable than the driver. James made a really interesting observation about engineers during the interview. He said, yes, they're incredibly important, but they're also plentiful. So no one individual engineer is going to demand outsized compensation, except maybe one or two extraordinary people. If we're going to determine whether a data analyst or a driver should be paid more, I need a relative measure that compares VORD to VORM. And as far as I know, that data point doesn't yet exist. 
ladies and gentlemen, you heard Vorm here first. Excited, Paul, to see what some future work could be done around that particular metric. From my standpoint, I would love to see a chief strategist of a Formula One team in a Rolex commercial, for instance. But we're not there yet. And this specific argument is about whether data analysts or the mathematicians should be paid more than the drivers. Now, that's different from whether the data analysts, to your point, are more valuable than the drivers with regard to winning races. So until a chief strategist is the number one reason fans tune in to watch a race or buy a ticket or a sponsor signs on because of that strategist, then drivers, because of their commercial potential, will and should still be paid more. That's not to say that the mathematicians aren't valuable. I love them. I appreciate them. But in the end, this sport is commercially driven as well, and the drivers bring in the revenue in large respect. So to that point, this is such a nuanced argument, and I love it for that. James brought up this notion that sponsors are looking at the commercial opportunity through a new lens. It's not just about logo placement on the car. It's not just about product placement and advertising. It's also about access to the strategic thinking of the team. And so if we're going to be selling as part of a sponsorship, you get to meet the brilliant minds and learn from the brilliant minds behind our competitive strategy, that argues in favor of the mathematician. So, Paul, that, that's a very valid point. And, and I will say that for organizations that are looking to study big data and analytics and decision-making, Formula One teams, based on some of the work that I am doing in this space, do provide a very interesting and applicable example to understand data-driven decision-making in today's marketplace. Mary? Last word is yours. Yeah, you know, I really do like this argument. I like the idea of mathematicians being paid more than athletes in some sector. Um, I think, unfortunately, as isn't true in almost every industry, salaries and pay aren't always linked to the direct correlation of the success of whether it be a sports team or a company. Um, and I think, unfortunately, to bring it back to data, even if you had the data to prove that someone winning was based specifically on one person versus another, that still isn't necessarily what goes into salary negotiations. So I'm a little bit of a skeptic here. This has been CounterPoints, the sports analytics podcast from MIT Sloan Management Review. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are streamed. And please take a minute to post a review. We really want to hear your feedback. CounterPoints is produced by Mary Dew. Our theme music was composed by Matt Reed. Our coordinating producer is Mackenzie Wise. Jake Menashe is our crack researcher. Our maven of marketing is Desiree Barry. <laughs>